0: Welcome to episode 48 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. And in this episode, we speak to retired agent Todd Holsey. Now, Todd served with the FBI for 15 and a half years. However, he actually has more than 21 years of federal law enforcement service. Prior to obtaining his law degree and joining the Bureau, Halsey worked for five years as a special agent with the United States Customs Service, now known as ICE, Immigration and Custom Enforcement. Halsey is interviewed regarding a nuclear espionage case, involving Pedro Leonardo Masseroni and his wife, Marjorie Masaroni. Leo Masseroni was a theoretical physicist, formerly employed at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. When the FBI discovered that Masaroni had made contact with a foreign country and had offered to sell his expertise and assistance to build a nuclear weapons program for that nation, a preliminary investigation and then full investigation was initiated. Holsey supervised the Albuquerque division case and the agents, analysts, and surveillance group members who gathered all the evidence needed to prosecute the Masaronis for espionage. He was eventually sentenced to five years in prison and she to one year for illegally passing documents which contained information derived from classified and restricted data. Post retirement, Todd Holsey now runs his own law practice and operates X Fed Productions, an entertainment consulting firm providing technical advice in the areas of national intelligence, law enforcement and military operations to authors, screenwriters, video game developers, producers, and directors. Now, Todd and I talked for over two hours. Instead of editing out any of that fascinating information that he provided, I divided this into two parts. So this is the first part of the two-part episode. The reason our conversation lasted so long is Todd not only provided behind-the-scenes information about the Massaroni case, but he really gives us a good understanding of counterintelligence and espionage and how the FBI goes about investigating these type of cases. But before we get to that episode, I've got to say, Happy New Year! You know, the funny thing is, that this time last year, I had no idea I would be doing this podcast. I knew that I was publishing my crime novel pay to play. And I knew that I was going to have to start up some type of a website and maybe blog in order to build an audience, you know, for my FBI crime series. But I had no idea that it would be a podcast, you know, a few weeks later, when I was talking to one of the retired agents about an interesting case. And I thought, hey, I can do this. That will be my way of reaching out to potential readers. And at the same time, letting people know more about the FBI. Unlike a lot of books and movies and TV shows that you see about the FBI, we do a whole lot more than chase after serial killers and terrorists. And you guys know that because you've been listening to the episodes. Thank you. I also need to say thank you to all of you who put pay to play on your Christmas list. I am just so pleased and so grateful for the support that you've given this crime novel. I now have 41 reviews and still have a fantastic 4.8 out of 5 star rating on Amazon. I'm going to read just two of my newest reviews to you real quick. The first one is from KB. And she or he said, loved it. Read it in one day. Pay to play has it all. Lots of twist turns and surprises. Fun read, but also provided a real look into the FBI, Philly politics, and then some. I want more Carrie. And then the next review was from James Harvey. And as a matter of fact, it was my first Amazon UK review. And James was kind enough to repost it on amazon.com. And James says, excellent story from one of my fave podcast host must read. I'm really not a reader. And I'm certainly not a reader of fiction. But after listening to Jerry Williams, excellent FBI podcast, her request for support got me to get and read on Kindle her new book, Pay to Play. I'm a massive true crime fan and listen religiously to police and criminal stories. But this is my very first fiction read. I'm delighted to say that you could actually mistake the story for real life. It's that good. I really enjoyed it. As it being fiction, I thought I wouldn't. Well done, Jerry. Well, thank you, James. Thank you very much. And while I'm handing out thank yous, I also want to thank a listener who always manages to leave a positive comment on my Facebook page, Jerry Williams author, letting me know how excited he is to listen to the latest interview. So thank you, Wally Barnett. And I don't want to leave anybody out. So thank you also. Thank you for listening every week to the podcast. Thank you for purchasing my crime novel, Pay to Play. Thank you for your support. What a difference a year makes. And because this is the last episode of the year, I was going to do kind of a wrap up of all the interviews and highlights. But then I realized that my 50th episode is only two weeks away. So I'm going to hold off and do something special on that episode. So stay tuned. Now here's the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I want to introduce my guest to you, Todd Holsey. Hi, Todd. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? I am doing great. Now, I'm very excited about this interview because the episodes where the retired agents are discussing espionage or spy cases are very popular.
2: Well, I hope I live up to the billing, Jerry. Thank you.
1: But before we get into the nuclear espionage case of yours, if you could tell me a little bit more about you, when you joined the FBI and why you joined the FBI.
2: Well, I joined the FBI in August of 1998, and I retired uh, the last day of March in 2014. Now, uh, after high school, I went into the military, and uh, did an enlistment in the Marine Corps, and then I went to college. And after college, I had always, as a kid, I always wanted to be a federal agent of some kind. And uh, I approached all, you know, all the federal agencies, including the FBI, and uh, uh, seeking to apply to them. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, enlisted uh, military service was not considered professional work experience. And As you know, all applicants must have at least three years of professional work experience. So I was unable to apply to the FBI then, uh, and just for veterans who may be listening out there, it's different today. But back in the 80s, it wasn't considered professional work experience, as opposed to if I had been a commissioned officer, then that would be considered, quote, professional work experience, end quote. So... I ended up applying to several agencies and was hired by the United States Customs Service. Uh, it does not exist anymore since uh, Homeland Security was created in, uh, on, on March 1, 2003. But at the time, Customs Service, a Treasury Department agency, was heavily engaged in the war on drugs. So um, I, uh, I was hired by them. Uh, I spent five years as a special agent with the uh, U.S. Customs Service, and I uh, was a Title 21 cross-designated custom special agent, which essentially means I was a DEA agent carrying a Treasury Department badge. And then after five years, I quit. I went back to grad school, and I went to law school uh, right after grad school, got my law degree, passed the bar exam, and started to practice law in San Antonio. And really found practicing law to be less than stimulating, shall we say. <laughs> okay. And I missed uh, being an investigator and putting the puzzle together. And so I I approached my former agency, uh, U.S. Customs Service. Uh, They could not have been more bothered, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. And uh, so after that, I thought, well, you know, there's only one agency that actively hires lawyers to be special agents, and that's the FBI. And also applied to DEA. I slow-walked that application so that I wouldn't get a job offer from them first so uh, anyway so after after uh, I went through the application process and then after a 14-month period which is actually pretty fast uh, I was at Quantico uh, August 30th 1998 at new agents training and you asked me why the FBI well the FBI is unique in the United States government. In fact, it's unique in the English-speaking world in that it is both an intelligence agency and a, and a law enforcement agency. And and what my military experience was mostly in the intelligence arena. And uh, so I was attracted by, by that uh, dual mission function that the FBI had. And uh, it was always in the back of my mind and, although many people in other federal agencies might tend to scoff at what I'm about to say, I think that it's demonstrably true that, that the, the creme de la creme of um, federal law enforcement is the FBI. It is the agency by which all others are measured. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, of course, in terms of uh, its intelligence functions, uh, which the public doesn't really know about because they're not publicized much. The public knows about, you know, um, uh, mafia cases, serial um, killers, uh, <laughs> serial killers, which is probably the biggest one uh, thanks oh, to TV my God. And movies. You I know? know, but have no idea what the FBI does as one of America's intelligence agencies. So that's what attracted me to the bureau, and I was very fortunate to uh, to have been hired. Where did this case take
1: place? Tell, Give us a, a quick summary of the case
2: that uh, we're
1: going to be talking
2: about. All right. This case was a case at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is in Los Alamos, New Mexico. It's above Santa Fe. Uh, it's northwest of Santa Fe. It is where the Manhattan Project was led and managed. It is... The laboratory that developed America's first atomic bombs. It's the epicenter of the American nuclear weapons program. And it's one of three nuclear weapons laboratories. There's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, that's near San Francisco. There's Los Alamos in New Mexico. And then in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there's Sandia National Laboratories. Uh, there, now there are like three. There's about three other facilities in the quote nuclear weapons complex that the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is an agency of the Department of Energy, operate. But the three laboratories which do the physics and the science and the experimental engineering are Los Alamos, Sandia, and Lawrence Livermore.
1: Most people only know about Los Alamos. We. I'm not sure I've heard about the other two.
2: That's right, and uh, because that's you know the first atomic bomb was was exploded the test explosion was in New Mexico, and uh, and what, a funny aside is that the state of New Mexico, uh, a casual listener will probably think nothing goes on there. Well, New Mexico is is the locale of uh, two nuclear weapons labs, Los Alamos and Sandia, three air force bases, one of which flies. Every vehicle that the uh, aircraft that Air Force Special Operations utilizes, that's at Cannon Air Force Base, and then the stealth fighter at Holloman Air Force Base, not to mention the fact that the the Air Force Nuclear Weapons Agency is there at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, and Sandia National Laboratories sits within the boundaries of uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, plus three research universities. And uh, you got University of New Mexico, New Mexico State, and New Mexico Tech. And uh, if you want to get a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a Ph.D. in bomb making, explosives engineering, you go to New Mexico Tech. A lot of stuff goes on in New Mexico that are of extreme interest of foreign governments, and therefore foreign intelligence services operate um, in that state to a uh, – a greater degree than almost anywhere else in the United States.
1: Oh, very interesting.
2: And so the case is uh, a theoretical physicist who worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories and, and his wife, uh, who is a technical writer there, who tried to sell a nuclear weapons program to a hostile foreign country.
1: Which I guess is a no-no.
2: Yes. One should not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So take me from the the very beginning.
1: When was the first time it was suspected
2: that, uh, and what was his name again? His name was Pedro Leonardo Mascheroni, and he went by Leo, and his wife was, his name Marjorie. And they both worked there? Leo had worked at Los Alamos. He left its employ uh, circa 1988. Um, At the time of the initiation of the case, we did not know that he was no longer uh, employed by Los Alamos, but his wife uh, had been employed and was, at the time of the initiation of the case, uh, employed as a technical writer at Los Alamos.
1: So what was the first thing that... Brought him into the focus, or on the radar of the FBI.
2: Well, Leo had traveled to Washington, D.C., and he appeared at the embassy of a nation hostile to the United States, and made contact with uh, with officials at that embassy. Now, without giving too much away that I'm not allowed to, um, sources and methods are utilized uh, in dealing with um, the diplomatic presence of, of nations that are hostile to the United States. So it was learned that, uh, that he made contact with this embassy and a quick... Uh, a quick run of his of his name through our files, which we in the FBI called indices, uh, revealed that he, his name popped up because he was in the FBI database, and it uh, that's when the red flags were raised and the uh, bells and whistles started to go off because he appeared in the FBI files uh, because he had a security clearance and and that is within FBI files and he obtained a security clearance to work at Los Alamos national laboratory. And in around 1980, circa 1980 or so, he, uh, had been on the FBI's radar in, in a case which, uh, he, he was, he did nothing wrong. It was essentially a disgruntled employee made unfounded allegations against, uh, uh, Leo and several other employees at Los Alamos, but it, those allegations had to be investigated, and, and it was simply a you know, report from from a disgruntled, fired employee at the time. But nonetheless, uh, Leo was uh, his name was in FBI files. So when it was when it was uh, determined, that, wow, we have a nuclear weapons scientist going to the embassy of a mission hostile to the United States. Then, um, like I said, the red flags were raised and the bells and whistles went off. And uh, from FBI headquarters in Washington, the Albuquerque Division received a lead that this had taken place and opened an investigation.
1: Now, is this an actual investigation or could you tell the listeners what the requirements are or or what the FBI has to go, go through as far as opening up an investigation?
2: Sure. Now, the rules are different now because the FBI adopted in 2008 something called the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guidelines, DIOG. It is is a a one-and-a-half-inch-thick manual of operations um, densely packed with rules and procedures that must be followed Prior to that, though, in 2007, operating under uh, the then-existing policies, and, and, and uh, as a practical matter, it's not much different even under the Diago what you have to do. But based on the information that we had, this person, a U.S. citizen with a security clearance, who at the time we believed still worked at the national laboratory, was at an embassy of a foreign country hostile to the United States. Well. That alone is not indicative of any criminal behavior. It could be multiple explanations why somebody went to an embassy uh, of, a, of a hostile foreign country, none of them being nefarious. So we opened a preliminary investigation of Dr. Mascheroni. And a preliminary investigation, you're able to do certain things. You can utilize all government databases. So you can run the subject's name and in particulars through databases. You can run, a, run the subject through the DMV database of the state that they live in, the state uh, crime information computer, um, if the state maintains its own, the National Crime Information Center, NCIC computer system, FBI's own files. You can run the name against other intelligence agency files by setting... Um, request for information to those other agencies to just see what what is known about the person. And um, although it's been uh, so many years now uh, and, and mostly having the dialogue burned into my mind, uh, I, I don't recall now whether or not physical surveillance, in other words, following people around was authorized under a preliminary investigation at that time. But memory tells me that it was for a limited period of time. And uh, so so if it was, we certainly at that time engaged in physical surveillance. So we had a special surveillance group, uh, which Albuquerque Division had one, on staff. Um, These are specialists who engage in the surveillance of national security subjects, not criminal subjects, but national security subjects, spies and terrorists and things like that and uh, very adept at conducting uh, covert uh, uh, surveillance. So we found out everything we could about the guy. And what we found in the preliminary investigation is that he was no longer employed by Los Alamos, but that his wife was. So there was still an active connection to the laboratory. And based on information, that was developed of his background, um, enough information was developed that justified opening a full investigation, and that's what we did. And under, uh, we, after we opened the full investigation, then we have uh, the, all of the FBI's uh, investigative, criminal investigative and counterintelligence authorities um, uh, at our disposal including uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, uh, surveillance coverage of the subject. And uh, so we opened a a full investigation. We moved it from preliminary to to full investigation and proceeded to to find out exactly what uh, Leo was was up to. Was his security clearance still active? It was not. When he left the employ of Los Alamos, his security clearance uh, after some period of time had expired. However, his wife held a security clearance as a technical writer there. And okay. um, probably the audience would be interested in knowing that uh, Leo was an immigrant from a South American nation, from Argentina. and Which plays into the story later uh, as to his mindset and his way of thinking, but in the United States, it doesn't matter what country somebody comes from. Uh, somebody can come from communist China, the Soviet Union back when it existed. It really doesn't matter. If somebody emigrates to the United States and becomes a citizen, then that person is treated like any other citizen and is able to obtain a security clearance You know, if they're otherwise suitable for it. So he had immigrated to the United States from Argentina. He he obtained his PhD from uh, University of California at Berkeley in physics, and along the way obtained his citizenship, uh, was an American citizen, and then applied for a job at Los Alamos and um, and and was uh, found suitable for security clearance, and and then was granted a clearance to work on theoretical nuclear physis- physics as it pertains to nuclear weapons design. So he had this clearance. He was deeply involved in the theoretical physics part of nuclear weapons design and testing. And then when he left the employ again, after a period of time, um, the security clearance expired. So during the investigation, he did not have a clearance, but again, his wife was an active employee and she did have a clearance. So there was there was a direct line between Leo and Los Alamos.
1: So what does a technical writer do?
2: A technical writer takes the scientific and engineering information and writes it so that it can be easily understood. In other words, it, it takes the Science and writes it in a form that somebody can refer to, sort of as a user's manual, so to speak. Um, it, a technical writer digests the the information coming from the engineers or the scientists and puts it into a form usable by technicians who are probably not PhD-level physicists or engineers but in, in so a manual means, form or, or a readable form where they can understand the system that they're going to be working on.
1: So that means his wife had access to laboratory studies and materials and information uh, that was you know, active at uh, Los Alamos at that time.
2: Well, certainly in the nuclear weapons uh, field, things are in silos. So there's not a whole... There's not a large group of people who are going to have access to everything uh, that is going on at a lab because the laboratory is going to be run. Some of them will be special access programs that only certain people have access to. Some will be compartmentalized, uh, and, and I can explain what that means, but compartmentalized so that only people who are granted that, uh, that compartmentalization clearance uh, have access to and uh and, and that way that there's really no one person uh who's going to know everything that's happening uh, at a nuclear weapons lab but substantially she would have access to to um much information about the uh the activities uh going on at Los Alamos in terms of the science the engineering the experiments and things like that The accesses that she had, the access clearances that she had or compartmentalized clearances that she had, allowed her to work on on very certain kinds of programs, uh, but not directly nuclear weapons uh, programs, uh, information. However, if somebody is cleared and works in a uh, secured facility uh, human beings being human beings, uh, it's difficult to ensure that based on well, this person has this clearance with these accesses, and therefore this person will never see information from this you know these other areas that have their own separate access clearances required. I mean that's just not that's just not possible. Uh, that's just something that's on paper. As a practical matter, you know, uh, people you know human beings are social animals and and uh and, and information can can pass. So another well, I bring it up because you can't rest on she obviously doesn't have any knowledge of what's going on, you know, in building 32 because she doesn't have access clearance for what goes on in building 32. You can, you can't bank on that because because of what a piece of paper says, you have to assume that uh by virtue of of her working there that she's going to have Access to at least some of the information that happens in Building Thirty Two. I'm just making up Building Thirty Two. Right. Uh, I don't want. I hope there's no website out there that talks about the mythical Building Thirty Two at Los Alamos where <laughs> <is super> secret <laughs> stuff goes on. I'm making that up to illustrate the point that that, that from a counterintelligence perspective, you can't assume that somebody's not going to have access to everything that goes on at the nuclear weapons lab. You have to actually assume the opposite in order to protect the national security
1: but it sounds like that was one of the primary reasons that the investigation moved from a preliminary investigation to a full investigation
2: it was one of the primary reasons but and i think this is something that the uh, the audience might not be aware of either is that <clears throat> most people believe that the united states nuclear weapons program is under the department of defense but it is Make- not it is under the Department of Energy. The Department really? of de- the, yes, the Department of Energy. Uh, excuse me, the Department of Defense. When it has nuclear warheads mounted on missiles or in bombs, the Department of Defense is the custodian of those warheads, but not the owner of the warheads. The owner is the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy is the cabinet department in charge of the American Nuclear weapons Program. It is not the Department of Defense. And because Leo had worked at Los Alamos, he worked in the Theoretical Physics Division, in conjunction with our consultation with the Department of Energy and its experts, we determined that that Leo had enough knowledge in his head to actually be able to be the foundation for a nation's nuclear weapons program. And and wow. that's what that's what he was offering to this this foreign nation was to be their Robert this is what he said, to be their Robert Oppenheimer. Now Oppenheimer was the man in charge of uh, the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos, so he wanted to build this nation a nuclear weapons program. and as the Department of Energy explained to us is that he couldn't do it all by himself from a technical and an engineering standpoint, but he knew enough that he could lay the foundation, and, and that foreign government would simply have to have to hire the science and engineering talent. Uh, to do uh, to to actually make the program work, and, and so that was that was probably the number one reason that uh, that a full investigation was was uh, well, we moved from a preliminary to a full on Leo because he was a danger to the national security. Period. Regardless of of the fact that his wife still worked there. Uh, if okay. she hadn't been working with her, uh, if he had no active relationship with the laboratory, the dangers would have still been present in terms of, of of just the knowledge he had acquired over the years that he worked at Los Alamos in being able to be the Robert Oppenheimer uh, uh, of another nation.
1: All right. Now, you mentioned that he had offered to you know set up the foundation for a nuclear program for this uh, this foreign government. How do how do you know that? How did you how did you find out about that?
2: Well, initially, it's a kind of a, there's a multi part answer to that.
1: All you knew was that he had made contact.
2: So That's right. I'm
1: just wondering. I'm wondering how you know exactly what was discussed during that contact attempt, or was it discussed during that? initial contact attempt.
2: No, we did not know the substance of whatever conversation or conversations may have taken place between Leo and uh, officials at this embassy. We didn't know, but we, in looking at his background, we learned some things about him and he had previously made statements to people former co-workers at Los Alamos, that he could take his knowledge and sell it to another country and, and and build the foundations of a nuclear weapons program. He had said that. And in trying to learn more about this person, um, we basically came to the conclusion that, because, again, also an investigation is is a fact-finding endeavor on turning over the rocks to see what facts are found, but it's also an exercise in exclusion. In other words, there was no discernible, legitimate reason that we found that Pedro went to this embassy. There there was nothing that we found that would indicate that it was an innocent meeting, uh, there were no plans. They had no plans to visit this country, so they, they apparently, he apparently didn't go there to apply for a visa. Uh, so so in, in the process of the investigation, there's also the exclusion of what reasons could there be that are n- not nefarious at all that, that he presented himself at this foreign embassy, and we couldn't find anything. There was no, nothing that, that led us to believe that the contact was an, was an otherwise innocent one. And so based upon the statements he had made in the past, we we had to assume that that's what the purpose of the the, the trip to the embassy was. And what we decided to do was to to uh create a, what we call in the business a a, a false flag operation and run an undercover asset against him and see, A, what he really wanted to do at the embassy, and then, based on that information, begin um, to, to to lead Leo to believe that he was interacting with this foreign government. and uh, And that's what we decided to do. So I think the audience is probably familiar with the famous FBI profilers, for example. Yes. So we set a lead to the behavioral science unit at Quantico to do a uh, an analysis of Leo and to, to build his personality profile of him and, and and to a lesser extent his, his wife, but we, we, we did we did that. A lot of things happen in these investigations concurrently, so it's not like you go from A then to B, then to C, then to D. Because of the information we developed after the full investigation was was uh was initiated then we began the process of obtaining a warrant from the foreign intelligence surveillance court to conduct electronic surveillance of leo and his wife and that is not the easy process that some people Commentators in the news media believe that it is, but we managed to to develop enough information to 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 establish probable cause that electronic surveillance was necessary in the case, and then it was presented to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in Washington, and and it issued a court order under that statute, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It uses the term court order, but. In the criminal world, it would have been called a search warrant, or under the Title Three, it's also which is the criminal wiretap statute. It's also called a court order, but functionally they're the same thing as a search warrant. So we 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 did obtain an order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and we conducted electronic surveillance of uh, Leo and his wife, and that provided us a great insight into. Their thinking, um, their relationship as a married couple, uh, and, uh, and his motivations for, for uh, uh, wanting to be the Oppenheimer for a foreign nation. So based upon uh, some, some of the information derived from the electronic surveillance, the uh, behavioral science unit was able to, to uh, draw this portrait of him. And uh his mindset, his, method, his way of thinking, his approach to, to, to different different uh, relevant tasks and and uh, painted a picture of uh, the relationship that he had with uh, with his wife um, and you know the marital relationship being being so intimate in what it is, I mean it's a very important factor to consider and and so when we decided to to run the false flag operation against him, we were armed with uh, information derived from the physical surveillance we had been conducting, and for the audience's benefit, Uh, once we determined that he was a serious threat to national security, we brought in a special surveillance group, SSGs, uh, and the FBI they called the Gs, Um, we brought in extra Gs uh, to surveil both of them. So we had 24 hour a day, seven day a week physical surveillance of both of them ongoing, including aerial surveillance from the aviation unit uh, in the Albuquerque division, which I I supervised both the Albuquerque SSG and the Albuquerque aviation unit, and I supervised the the counterintelligence <laughs> squad. Um, yeah, so I was in charge of all of that, and it was it was kind of a it was a very very busy time period. So, um, so we, we we conducted all of that surveillance plus the electronic surveillance, which you would, you would in, in popular vernacular wiretapped them, and um, and so we learned a lot of information about them, and so we developed a plan on how we were going to organize the false flag and what it was going to do. So it, was, it enabled us to to decide what kind of undercover uh, uh, special agent we needed to. Uh, to hire essentially to uh, to run the false flag, and um, I do want to take I want to take because I just brought what I supervised. I want to take the opportunity to put it on the record in your podcast. I was the supervisor, but it was the it it's to the credit of the case agent. And since I don't have his permission to use his full name, his name is Tim. He's now retired, just like I am. Tim a consummate professional, one of the best FBI agents I've ever worked with and one of the best human beings I know. He was the case agent, and it was his leadership as case agent that really made this case happen. And then I have to give kudos to every special agent, every surveillance specialist, and every intelligence analyst who worked on this case. Without them, this case would simply have, have, have not Uh, not been conducted with the high level of integrity and professionalism and attention to detail that it was. And they made my job as the supervisor of the case much easier because they were all so good at what they did. So kudos to the case agent, Tim, and to everyone who worked on the case. And uh, I have to get that on the record because I don't want anybody listening to think that, you know i i, I was any great shakes i was i was the guy more often than not sitting in the office you know um reading reports and signing stuff um uh, I might be directing some things here and there but but as you know being a retired agent yourself the case agent actually supervises the case the supervisor supervises the case agent and 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 so so kudos to them and not to me
1: well i have to add though as a case agent the best thing that you can have is a supervisor who makes sure that you have everything you need, manpower and resources, and runs interference with headquarters as you work your case. So kudos to you, too. you got to take some credit for that because this was a success. That meant that you gave them every tool that they needed in order to get it done. Is that fair?
2: That's fair. Yes, that's fair. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's fair. So. I suppose um get, getting back to the the main topic is we we decided to run a false flag and we had the behavioral science unit come up with the behavioral profile and then we started to find an undercover special agent who would be perfect for this role. And how do you do that? Well, the um there is an undercover unit at and it's not, the unit's not undercover, that's what it supervises, there's an <laughs> undercover unit at FBI headquarters, and so we set a lead to that unit. And we said, we need an undercover special agent, and that undercover special agent needs to have these uh, capabilities. And because the hostile foreign nation was uh, a South American country, uh, and I'm not trying to play hide the ball, it's public record which information, which excuse me, which which country it was. His public record um, because of the criminal case that, that was later filed, but I just that country is not germane to the story quite yet. Um, it was a South American country, and again, remember I, I mentioned that Mascarone uh, Leo was, uh, was from a South American country, not the same one. But we mm-hmm. needed somebody who was Latin American, who was fluent in Spanish, mm-hmm. who had been an experienced undercover certified special agent acting as a foreign intelligence officer and and who knew enough about the geopolitics of the interaction between the United States and and this particular country in question in South America. So we put this out with its requirements and the undercover unit sends back to us a list of, um, I think, three names or five names that was on it. And... Yeah. And it's a very bureaucratic process. We get 5 names, but you know, 3 of them are in deep undercover roles and are not available. So <laughs> and, and you also you can't get an undercover special agent who's from your neck of the woods. So we couldn't get anyone from Texas or Arizona, and certainly not from from the Albuquerque division that's covered the entire state of New Mexico. We had to get somebody from another part of the country. Because the worst thing in the world would be to have the undercover out on a Saturday, you know, with you know, wife and two kids at a hamburger joint, and there's the uh, there's the subject of your investigation walking in, and you know, and and now you're you're no longer the undercover role. You're you in real life. You know, we can't have right. that happen. So right, so we had to get somebody from somewhere else. So this particular undercover special agent was from one of the Florida divisions. I will not get more. Specific than that, he was stationed at one of the one of the uh, FBI's Florida uh, field divisions, and uh, and we basically got on his schedule, you know, through his division. The public often thinks. I'll just this is a tangent here for the benefit of your audience. The public often thinks that that if one is if an agent, a special agent, is wearing plain clothes, that that means they're undercover. Well, that does not mean one's undercover. In fact, the federal agents in general, with the exception of, you know, maybe the Border Patrol, but, but certainly the FBI, we don't wear uniforms. We always wear civilian clothes. So just wearing civilian clothes doesn't mean one's undercover. Undercover is, a, is a, an actual qualification. Uh, one must be vetted very strenuously uh, when one applies to be a certified undercover special agent. And it includes a psychological evaluation. I mean, there's several things a person does in the application process. And then once they're accepted by the FBI for undercover certification, they then go to an undercover certification course at Quantico. I've never been through it, but people who have worked with me and for me and I've worked for who were undercover certified said that it was one of the most difficult courses that they've ever been through. And so being an undercover special agent means one is certified to be, to operate undercover. And of course, annually, undercover, uh, certified undercover special agents have to submit to, to a psychological uh, examination and other things, mostly to protect the, uh, the, the special agent. Cause th- there have been in the history of undercover operations, people who are undercover so deep. That they start to become the role that they're playing, and, and that's what wants to be avoided. The person always has to stay grounded into who they who they really are. Anyway, the uh, certified undercover is a specialist, and there aren't a whole lot of these people to go around. And remember, the FBI has this broad uh, portfolio. It has it, it, it's it, it conducts criminal investigations, it conducts national security investigations, it conducts intelligence collection, all of these things. So. The undercover special agents are are uh, are quite well utilized. So you have to get uh, somebody who's available uh, to work on your case. And, and we were fortunate uh, to get uh, an undercover special agent who who was extremely adept at uh, at his craft.
1: So what was it that you wanted this undercover agent to do? How was he supposed to make contact with Massaroni?
2: Based on our electronic surveillance, we learned what contact information he had, that that Leo Mascheroni had left with this foreign embassy. And um, he left an email address and a telephone number. And although it's remote enough in time that my memory is not clear on a lot of the details like this, what my memory says is that is that the undercover special agent sent Leo an email and it was just that simple. And, uh, contents of the email was something like, you know, hi, you know, I'm a friend. Our friends in Washington told me to contact you. Um, and then Leo responded to that. And, uh, and then the contact was made. And, uh, then the, uh, the, uh, race had commenced, so to speak, uh, running the false flag operation. Fascinating. Again, because of television and movies, uh, this uh, this is another tangent, Jerry, so please bear with me, is that most people only know uh, the criminal investigative part of the FBI. Like I said, serial killers. That's the big thing, because movies and TV show us serial killers. and, And that's great, but the, uh, the FBI, uh, as an as a intelligence agency, um, conducts uh, intelligence collection uh, in the United States. Now, the intelligence community has 17 agencies. One of the 17 is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which is the uh, coordinating body over all the other agencies. But the United States has three main intelligence agencies. It has the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA. They each have different and specific purposes Unlike what movies and, and TV shows and some novels out there uh, showcase, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency is not a law enforcement agency. It has no law enforcement mission, no law enforcement capabilities, no law enforcement know-how and uh, and frankly, they don't want to do law enforcement. That's not what they do. They are a human intelligence uh, human uh, human intelligence collection agency. They're very good at it and they operate principally overseas. I say principally overseas because there is some overlap between what they do uh, in collecting foreign intelligence and what the FBI does. Now, a a typical scenario would be you have a CIA officer who is assigned uh, undercover to a U.S. embassy in a foreign country, and undercover meaning under diplomatic cover, so the CIA officer might be the deputy third assistant secretary for paperclip management at the embassy. But the real job is, as an intelligence officer, their job is to recruit people in the country they're assigned to to spy against their country for the United States. Okay. And the FBI, though, uh, has the same mission domestically. And a cynic would say, oh, see, the FBI spies on Americans. Well, you take a couple steps back from that for a minute, that cynical and incorrect view. Foreign nations have a tremendous presence in the United States. Virtually every country on planet Earth has a mission to the United Nations in New York. And almost every country has an embassy in Washington, D.C. And many of these countries that have embassies in Washington have consulates spread across the United States. So there's a tremendous foreign presence in the United States. There are also many foreign-owned corporations that have a footprint in the United States. And when I say foreign-owned, I don't mean own, the, the capitals owned by foreign citizens. I mean owned by foreign governments.
1: Not just a person from that country, but the actual foreign
2: government. Exactly. Many other countries in the world, their governments, especially, I mean, I mean, Europe is a prime example of, of uh, of you know government capitalism, uh, but, but but that's not unique to Europe. It's all over the world, yeah, and especially communist China. Many corporations in China, the major stockholder is the government. It's not individual persons, and so there's a tremendous industrial or commercial footprint in the United States uh, of, of foreign government-owned corporations, and also you have fraternal organizations. You know, you have fr- fraternal organizations of people from. Certain countries that, you know, the same ethnicity, the same racial makeup, or something uh, for the old country, and these fraternal organizations are often sponsored by the old country, by the foreign country overseas. All of these are used as intelligence collection platforms to run intelligence operations against the United States. And so the FBI is the lead counterintelligence agency, so the FBI combats those intelligence operations. But also, how? what is another way to collect foreign intelligence domestically? Well, if you have a foreign intelligence officer uh, at an embassy in Washington who who is the, we'll go back in history, to a country that doesn't exist but once did, the Soviet Union. So you have a Soviet diplomat who who, like the example I gave earlier of the CIA officer overseas at an American embassy in a foreign country, the Soviet diplomat is the third deputy assistant secretary in charge of paperclip management at the embassy, except that his real job is a KGB uh, officer. And so when you think about how you collect foreign intelligence against a a country, what better way than than to recruit a foreign country's intelligence officer to work for you? Oh, and absolutely. So the FBI would be the agency that would uh, assess the, uh, the Soviet diplomat believed to be, and in some cases known to be through sources and methods, but believed to be a KGB officer. And the FBI would work up the approach by either a confidential human source, which in criminal vernacular is called an informant, or by an undercover certified special agent. And the approach would be made, the pitch to recruit the Soviet diplomat to work for the United States as an intelligence asset. And when you're dealing with an intelligence officer, if you recruit that officer as a as an intelligence asset, then you have doubled that officer back against his own country. And that officer is a double agent. And so the FBI does that. And the FBI does the same kinds of activities against foreign intelligence targets that reside in the United States. So when you talk about recruiting and operating spies, when the Central Intelligence Agency does it overseas, well, the FBI does that same mission in the United States and its territories and possessions and, and so most people don 't realize that, that that the fbi is 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 a huge, huge player in the uh in the national intelligence business.
1: Let me interrupt you for a second to, mm-hmm. to have you explain why they don't know that and how there are some cases that we can talk about, like this particular case, and how there are other cases that no one will ever, ever know about?
2: That's a great question. And it's because when a foreign intelligence officer is committing espionage in the United States, that's a crime. But the objective is not to arrest and prosecute the foreign intelligence officer. The objective is to recruit that foreign intelligence officer and double that intelligence officer back against his or her own government and run them as a double agent. So when those cases are conducted, the public will never learn about those. Whether the case, whether the, uh, the, the case is a success or a failure, those things are not do not see the light of day with the public. They're not publicized at all. However, when a United States citizen conducts espionage, the objective is then investigation, arrest, prosecution, prison. Because it's been decided, it's a policy-level decision from way back that what the government needs to do when a U.S. citizen is spying on our country, his own or her own country, is to stop the activity. It's like in first aid. You know they teach you. You know, if the person's bleeding, stop the bleeding. That's the first thing you do is stop the bleeding. So it's it's it, it, looking at it at that as an analogy, it's to stop the bleeding. So uh, in the case of of Leo, this was a, a criminal case, an espionage case, because he was a U.S. citizen who uh, was was attempting to turn over national security information to a foreign government, and because it was a criminal case, it eventually ended up in court, and therefore it's a matter of public record and and we can talk about it in this forum so the, the, that's why the fbi's intelligence mission is opaque to the public uh is simply because you know when you're recruiting and operating you know sources against foreign countries when you're doubling their intelligence officers back on them those things will never go to court and are never going to be treated as criminal cases and never go to so therefore never go to court and never see the light of day and that's why you don't see it in in movies and and tv shows and novels and things like that it could be exciting i suppose to make a tv show or movie about it but but i I think that most people want to concentrate on you know the you know beautiful young girls kidnapped by the serial killer and, and you know just fill in the blanks because there's like you know hundred hundred thousand stories like that out there about the FBI and serial killers but um most of the public just simply doesn't doesn't know for those reasons what the FBI really does
1: yeah and that's a shame because i mean we do have agents who do investigate you know multiple murders and and serial killers helping the locals tie in those cases but what is it 1% 5% of what we do and the 95 or 99 percent are all these other very exciting and informative cases, like the one that we're discussing now.
2: Yes, and to relate back all of this to the case at hand about recruiting double agents and operating them against their own governments is that fact of a certified undercover special agent who uh, is adept at doing these sorts of things to be able to utilize that undercover special agent. To run a false flag against uh, against Leo, and that's what we did. And so, after the contact was initially made and Leo responded, then a meeting was set up. And the meeting was set up in Santa Fe. The undercover special agent flew out from Florida and uh, was briefed up. Now he, we, we took care of the details, the location of the of the meet with Leo. Uh, all the details uh, my squad handled. So uh, the undercover asked Leo to meet him at this hotel in Santa Fe. And prior to the meet, we had, uh, in the vernacular, teched up the hotel room. So there was audio and visual surveillance of the hotel room. We had two rooms rented adjacent to one another. The other room uh, had several Uh, FBI special agents in it, including the case agent, Tim. And we had surveillance, both vehicle surveillance on the ground and aerial surveillance in the air that took Leo from his home in Los Alamos, which is about an hour and a half drive away from Santa Fe, hour and 45 minutes or so away from Santa Fe. And we followed Leo down to Santa Fe and to the meet location at this hotel and physically watched him walk into the hotel and then eventually enter the room in which the meeting was going to take place. The undercover special agent was already in the room at this time. And you know, just for like any like in any criminal case, uh with a chain of custody of evidence, well you have to sort of have chain of custody on the subject too, because you're gonna have to prove that the subject left his home voluntarily, drove all this way, and then voluntarily uh, went into the hotel, then voluntarily went into the room, and then and voluntarily met with the undercover special agent uh, to remove any doubt that the person was coerced. I mean, some if you don't do the surveillance like that, It's easy for somebody to say, you know, there was this dude named Bobby, and Bobby had a gun, and Bobby held it to my head, and Bobby made me drive down to the hotel, and Bobby made me meet meet with this guy. Well, where's Bobby? I don't know. But but see, so if somebody can say that, and you say that in front of a jury, then that that could be reasonable doubt um, right right there. Because how do you then prove that Bobby didn't exist? So you have to do this kind of uh, surveillance. And so – Leo walks into the room, and there, then we have the, the uh, audio and visual surveillance uh, of the room um, going, so we see him physically meet with the, uh, with the undercover special agent. And in the introduction, the undercover special agent was not expressly forthcoming, because that would be odd, given the role that he was playing, but made it clear to Leo that he was an intelligence officer of this foreign country, and that his contact at the embassy... Had gone through the bureaucratic chain down to uh, the capital of this country, and then he was assigned to make contact to uh, with Leo to see exactly what you know who he was and if he could do what what he said he could do. And of course, here's another thing: is that uh, if you're an intelligence officer for a country and you're told go meet this person for this purpose, you're not given every single scrap of information about the person and what the person did. And, and, and I mean, maybe sometimes depending upon the type of intelligence that needs to be collected, but the undercover special agent, he, he basically said, he said, look, he said I was sent by our friends to meet with you. I don't know precisely what it is that you want to do. And in order for me to be your connection with our friends, you have to tell me a little bit about why you contacted them and what this is all about. And, and so Leo told him. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Leo. Yeah. And, uh, and this is where the skill of the undercover special agent comes through. I think somebody listening out there to this podcast is probably saying, well, gee, that sounds like a really blunt approach. Well, the undercover special agent was very adroit at doing this. It was very smooth, and uh, my description is blunt, but uh, but what the what the undercover special agent actually said, and I don't, I don't have any quotes. I don't have transcripts, and this is all from memory. But he basically said what I said, but he did it very adroitly so that it was smooth and it didn't raise any red flags with uh, with Leo.
1: When you when you made this approach, how did you know that the foreign
2: country hadn't already made an approach. We didn't. We didn't know that. We had okay. to assume, though, that based on our surveillance, that because there had been no contact with Leo by this foreign government, that there had been none. And okay. as a as a career counterintelligence special agent, from that perspective, the counterintelligence perspective, the foreign country, they get this guy, walks in their embassy wants to talk to somebody about you know presumably hi i want to talk to somebody here about selling you nuclear a nuclear weapons program i don't know if that's what this what leo said but i mean can you imagine you're sitting there you're you're you work at an embassy and this dude walks in and says hey you know I want to sell you a nuclear weapons program i mean from a human level you're going to go yeah right mm-hmm. so but anyway, you don't turn these people away because who knows? You don't know what their what their motivation is, what they're there for, what they can offer. So they take you to the back room and you sit down with uh, with a diplomat who is more than likely either a security officer or an intelligence officer, and you know make your pitch. The country, okay, well, thank you very much. Hey, um, okay, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll see you out. Thanks for coming, and have a nice day. The embassy in the country has to initially believe that it's what in the intelligence business is called a provocation. It's putting the 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 uh, minnow in the water uh, on the end of a hook to see if somebody will bite, and then run an intelligence operation against them uh, using the uh, the provocation as the as the initial platform to do so. And and I hmm. think that the country in question probably thought it was a provocation. They probably thought it was an attempt by American intelligence to draw them into a relationship with this person, Leo, in order for the United States to, to run uh, an intelligence operation against that country. That's what any country would, would think. So I think that country wrote everything down. They filed their reports like any good bureaucrat will do. And they promptly forgot about the guy. You know he's in their system. You know he's in you know their computer file. Um, but they probably thought that he was he was there for purposes other than what he said. And given that that is most likely what happened uh, in this case, it was it was a gamble. But uh, that that Leo had not been contacted by this country. But again, based on our surveillance up to that point, there is no indication that he was. And, okay. and had he been, had he been, then the undercover would simply have had to play it off by coming up with some explanation on the fly. Would it have been convincing? Who knows? But, you know, the undercover agent, was, the special agent, was not unprepared for the eventuality because it's something that we discussed. You know, that we don't know if if this country had actually contacted Leo, but, you know, without because we don't believe that he has at all. And so the undercover special agent was prepared and in this particular case Leo had not and no he was willing to he was eager to play ball
1: excellent so what was his assignment what did the undercover tell Leo he wanted him to do or what did Leo say to the undercover
2: well Leo laid out that he wanted to be this country's uh, Robert Oppenheimer to build a nuclear weapons program for this country and 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 he told the undercover that uh it was because being an argentinian uh he was you know he wanted uh this country because it was hostile to the US had a belligerent president at the time and um and that this country could be the protector for all of south america and if if this country just developed uh just a few nuclear nuclear devices then it would it would ensure that that the country would never be invaded by the united states and that the rest of South America would not have been, you know, would be uh, safe from American invasion because the the Bolivarian Republic would, would would be there to shield the entire continent from Yankee aggression kind of thing. So that's what he told the undercover that he wanted to do.
1: But he's an American citizen at this time. Um, Did you, did you really believe that it was an, you know, an ideology type of reason behind him wanting to do this? Or was there something
2: else? There was something else. And, you know, in the history of uh, American espionage, in other words, Americans who spy on their own country, it has almost never, ever been an ideological motive for conducting espionage against our country.
0: And that's the end of part one of this episode. Next week, you'll learn the answer to what motivated Leo Masseroni. But because you've been listening to this podcast, and have already learned from spy cases, what the motivations are for most Americans, you probably already know. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com. You'll find a photo of Todd, links to an FBI video, an overview, and newspaper articles. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. You know, I'm not as excited about the holidays as I used to be. That's because as my kids got older, they became teenagers and young adults. All I really get is a list of everything that they want and I just go online and I order it and that's the end of the, of the holiday spirit. So gift giving isn't as fun as it used to be. But in the spirit of the season, I have my own Christmas wish list. First thing on the list is for you to download the ebook or purchase the trade paperback of Pay to Play. If you've already purchased the book, please leave a review on Amazon. Another thing on my wish list is for you to subscribe to my FBI Retired Case File Review Newsletter. It only comes out once a month. You'll have links to all of the episodes. So if you listen to this on iTunes or one of the other podcast subscriptions, you'll be able to have a direct link so you can catch up on all the photos. Many agents have some fascinating photos from their cases that you don't want to miss. The newsletter will also bring you up to date with the retired agents that I've interviewed. For instance, Joe Pistone told us that he is in the middle of writing the next book in his Donnie Brasco fiction series. And Jim Fitzgerald, who was in episode three, is actually going to be having a TV series about his investigation of the Unabomber coming out this year. And I'll make sure all of that is in the monthly newsletters. You can sign up for the newsletter on my website. I mean, come on, you can trust me. I'm a retired FBI agent. I'm not going to spam you. Not done with my list. You can also subscribe and leave a review for FBI Retired Case File Review on iTunes. You can spread the word about pay to play and FBI retired to everyone that you know. And don't forget, I have a gift for you too. You can download that free FBI G-Man 2017 FBI collectible calendar. It's right on my website waiting for you to download the file. I hope 2017 is going to be a fabulous year. I know it will be for me. My daughter is getting married on June 10th to her high school sweetheart. So I already have great things happening in 2017, including being here with you every week. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Happy New Year. Thank you.